0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets, here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Forsyth Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those who will affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today talking with a fixed income strategist from Strategas. Uh We're going to have Professor Siegel to talk how the markets are doing. Uh, Professor, you've been talking about the Fed and inflation. We've had uh, a, a, certainly an interesting first day reaction, then everything being reversed. How's your take on the Fed and, and what is going on?
2: Right. I mean, wow, what a roller coaster. I mean... You know, he, he took 75 basis points off the table, but committed to 250s, then uh, said, we'll look around to see what we have to do, basically. Um, uh, and the market at first uh, thought, oh, he's taking 75 off the table. OK, that's great. Shorts uh, started covering a big short cover. And then afterwards, they say, yeah, but he's still going to be real tight. And, uh, you know, the, the same process of, uh, of uh, tightening uh, came on. I mean, we we have, you know, you can see the 10-year uh, crossed uh, 310. By the way, almost all the increase over the last two months in the 10-year has been in the real rate. Uh, the real rate has gone from negative one uh, all the way up to plus one quarter. Um, and that is really pressuring The cash, you know, the discounting on the cash flow of stocks. Stocks are real assets. They're going to be discounted at that real rate. And that is pressuring those stocks that have those long term um, cash flows. On on the payroll side, very much uh, came in as expected. Actually, I mean, it's 40,000 over, but then we got a a revision of the previous two months of minus 40,000. It came very, very uh, close. Um, the uh, participation rate fell back, It doesn't surprise me. I don't think we're getting back to the participation rates that we had pre-COVID. I think this, you know, COVID changed the world, accelerated a lot of, um, uh, early retirement and, um, uh, uh just change in, 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 attitudes towards work. Um, uh, nothing, I don't think, uh, wages were slightly soft. They, they were, Three tenths versus 4 tenths expectation, but then they revise upward the previous by one tenth. It's five over five point five year over year. We've talked about the fact I don't look at the earnings report in the um, employment report as something that is uh, potentially inflationary. What was concerning um, actually came earlier. Uh, we had the the worst productivity one quarter growth rate in um, uh, over 60 years at minus 7.5% in the first quarter. I mean, that, that is unprecedented. And by the way, uh, you know, we've had some people talked about productivity gains um, uh, and I had talked about it early on that we were seeing um, as a result of remote work and, and, and other changes, but, Right now, if you factor in that minus point seven five, we have not had any productivity acceleration uh, since COVID, and in fact, we might have had a, a productivity deceleration um, uh, since COVID. Again, uh, if we if we get a revision on first quarter GDP upward, you will get that productivity number also coming upward. But certainly, that was a that was a shocking. Number. I mean, it was expected to be minus 5.3, came in minus 7.5. Even minus 5.3 is among the very worst that you could have, and it came in uh, um, that much worse. Of course, looking forward, uh, uh, the, the CPI next Wednesday, I believe it is, is very, very important. I mean, so far, the expectations are relatively mild, and I worry they won't be met. CPI, uh, including food and energy, because of a slight decline in energy costs. This, you know, the the, the, um, the March number covered the uh, the peak of uh, the surge following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that has quieted down somewhat, lowered uh, gasoline prices, um, and so they have CPI month over month at only two tenths of a percent, which. Is basically the lowest in a year, a year and a half. Uh, they have the core rate at four tenths, but even those might be too low. And, of course, what is not comforting at all uh, is what is happening to uh, oil now. Um, we have uh, WTI at 111. Um, uh, gasoline prices are going back up. Um Natural gas prices, are off a bit today, but have surged to highs. We've talked about that b- before. Uh, so, I mean, it is not looking, you know, great on the energy front. Uh, despite the first quarter quote down and, and the continued close down in China, uh, you would expect a softer, um, uh, 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 some of the softer quotes on some of these commodities especially with the the real yields going up but it shows the shortage economy that we're in and I'm you know I'm fearing that that's going to continue to juice the CPI data coming forward um uh, is it enough to push the fed much further well pretty much committed 50-50 we did not get a dissent and by the way my my theory is is that by promising 250s he bought off Bullard, who wanted a 75, probably still wants it, but but decided to go along uh, without dissent at 250s um, going forward. If we get worse than expected, again, uh, in, we, we have to look at all the data going forward. We know the CPI is calculated with a lag, that there's a lot of uh, housing inflation that is yet to come in. Um, But the mortgage rate surging, a 30-year mortgage going up to 5% um, uh, tells you that uh, I I think there's going to be a cool off in that housing market. But uh, again, the statistics have to wait to catch up.
1: Professor, I know you've been saying um, the Nasdaq may. You know, you had been calling for the bear market earlier. It broke through some of those low levels. As you think about, like, what would cause some of the pain in some of the equity markets to stop? Is it just the rates not rising as fast? Uh, is it if is the Fed changing course a bit need to be required? What do you think would would cause the equity markets to find support?
2: Um, well, you know, I love the. You know, I, I said a few weeks ago, I'd like to see a capitulation. Um, with the VIX over a uh, 50. Um, I mean, the VIX is 32 right now as we speak. It's high, but um, you know, it hasn't reached the previous highs. If you really have a, a panic sell off. However, um, you know, the market, <laughs> you know, we're talking 17, 18, and I think earnings are still going to be good. I mean, and, and, and uh, yeah, rates are going up, but you still have a basically zero real rate environment. So, you know, the, the people, you know, Tina still applies um, uh, with this Fed tightening. Where are you going to go cash if you can manage to time the market, of course, but otherwise it's disappearing at six to seven percent a year by inflation. Um, uh, and you're still getting, you know, you know, what, what's, what's the return? I mean, the the one year is now at two percent. Uh, you want to go to three months, you're, you're talking about a 0.8%. You're still getting very low in people in bank accounts. They're not going to start raising those, uh, for several months. So cash isn't it. Bonds, I don't think are still interesting. Um, uh, three and a half. Um, however, the valuations are interesting and, and, and I, that may be, you know, we, you know, we broke through the bottles, but not decisively. But the action on the tape looks does not look good. Um, and the continued pressure on commodities and what I fear is going to be a bad index, I wouldn't be surprised to see another 5%. I'd like to see a real, you know, sell-off on all the speculative issues, um, you know, see 10 15% down days on some of those. Um, uh, uh, I still think we can avoid a bear market on S&P. We're in a bear market on NASDAQ. 25 to 30, I think, would be the limit on NASDAQ. And hopefully 20% down, if it gets there, would be the limit on uh, the S&P. Earnings are just too good, and alternatives are just too poor to push it down much more than that, in my opinion.
1: Very good, Professor. We'll leave it with you on that note. Thank you for joining to to give us uh, some commentary to start the show.
2: Thank you. Be with you next week.
1: Sounds great. Well, we're going to turn the conversation to Tom Tazoris, who's uh, a managing director of, of Strategus and, and focused on fixed income strategy. There, uh, Strategus is now a Baird company. Um, Tom, welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: No, oh, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, so you heard a little bit how the professor kicked us off, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about Strategas and what you you all do, but give us your macro. Did you hear anything from the professor on the Fed, inflation, that you want to take issue with, or, or give us how you're thinking about what you heard from the Fed uh, to start us off here?
0: Yeah, well, uh, obviously this week's uh, Fed meeting on Wednesday delivered us the single greatest one-day tightening that we've had in monetary policy in at least 30 years You'd have to go back to February of 1989 to get any sort of incrementally larger tightening in policy, um, but that was over a month back in a period where the Fed did multiple moves at any given time and didn't really kind of you know advertise them the way they do today. So this is at very least 30 years we haven't seen anything like this. Now we haven't even seen a 50 basis point hike. Since May of 2000, so it's been 20 years or so since we've seen anything just on the Fed funds rate, and that excludes what the Fed is doing on the balance sheet. So you put it all together, and there was an enormous amount of one-day tightening in the market, the financial markets on Wednesday. Now, the good news for financial assets is that you did see a short covering rally across both bonds and equities because this was already priced in. In fact, we have a model at Strategas we like to run, which, which we call our Strategas Monetary Tightness Index. And essentially, it looks at real yields, as Professor Siegel had noted, and it looks at break-even inflations. And it takes those and sort of creates this hybrid where it shows that we just six six to eight weeks ago, we were at the loosest monetary policy on record. We estimated that monetary policy was 400 basis points below neutral. In those six to eight weeks leading up to the Fed meeting uh, earlier this week, we tightened about 140 basis points just before the Fed tightening. So the market price, all of this Fed tightening in. In fact, the market went a little step further and even priced in fairly high odds, we'll call it about a one in four to one in three odds of a 75 basis point rate hike in May and or additional 75 basis point hikes later on this year. So no surprise, the Fed did not deliver that 75 basis point hike. In fact, Powell had some pretty strong language which suggested that he, just he at least, but also some at the FOMC, We're willing to take future 75 basis point rate hikes off the table, likely in exchange for firmer language supporting additional 50 basis point hikes. But what that did was incrementally, it actually pushed two-year yield down about a dozen basis points. So there was some short covering there as well, and the curve did steepen coming out of this, which kind of temporarily, when you combine that with short covering in equity markets and bond markets, you got a really healthy-looking rally coming out of the second half of the afternoon on Wednesday across multiple financial markets. And we have given it all back and then some in the last two days because the market has still had to deal with the fact that even though the Fed did not deliver the worst case scenario, it pretty much delivered on target and told us there is much more pain to come. Now, on that front, what makes this tightening cycle different from the last cycle was, and really since the prior cycles before that, is that the Fed is actively using the balance sheet to tighten monetary policy this time. We at Strategas have made a very important point. When you use the Fed funds rate as your primary tightening tool, you put more of the pressure to rein in aggregate demand onto Main Street America, that is the two-thirds to three-quarters of the economy that essentially are levered to the front of the treasury curve, zero to five years, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, households, student loans, auto loans. When you use the balance sheet to tighten monetary policy, you put more of that pain on what I would call Wall Street, but in aggregate, large-cap stocks, uh, U.S. Treasuries, large states, New York, California, shadow banking, hedge funds that are highly levered. You put more of that strain on the cash hoarders when you use the balance sheet. No surprise, the financial markets become a casualty when the Fed is using the balance sheet aggressively. On that front, the Fed came out on Wednesday, and yes, once again, they did not deliver the worst case scenario. We estimated that they could very easily have announced a pace of balance sheet reduction of sixty billion per month. They came in on the low side, 47.5 billion per month. And they said that they'll ramp that up to about ninety-five billion. What it amounts to is the Fed wants to drain the balance sheet by about three trillion over the next two to two and a half years or about, we'll call it $2 trillion, over the next 18 months. That is enough of a reduction in liquidity so that the 10-year part of the curve should continue to drift a little bit higher, and that probably means further losses for risk assets, particularly equities, but also U.S. credit uh, and U.S. mortgage-backed securities. And so you put it all together, you get a picture where, yes, the Fed didn't do the absolute worst it could have done, and there was a bit of a relief relief rally, but – Essentially, markets have to size this up in and, and, and combination with today's jobs report and say there's a lot more tightening to come, so don't get too comfortable at these levels.
1: Let's go into a, a little bit more on the, the, the mechanics of why you say the balance sheet runoff is, is more painful for Wall Street. Um, so raising the borrowing costs at the short end um, is sort of one direct function. When you th- you know, Powell would, would sort of didn't want to commit to how many hikes that rolling the balance sheet off was, you know, he sort of gave a loosey-goosey, maybe it's one hike, what they're thinking with the balance sheet. How are you thinking about it? But, and, and also talk about that transmission mechanism a little bit more for why Wall Street's the most impacted.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll give a simplified explanation. Um, it's certainly more nuanced than this, but first off, I'd say we estimate that every 500 billion of balance sheet reduction translates into about a quarter percent or 25 basis points of rate hikes. So you really do have to drain the balance sheet quite a bit to have a material, effective tightening uh, impact. With that said, the Fed is talking about draining the balance sheet. We'll say two trillion over the next 18 months, so That's the equivalent. We think of about another 75 basis points of tightening. Now, it's important, as you noted, that that tightening is directed at a different portion of the economy. You can think of it as it, – it, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but if you're a very levered, highly levered hedge fund that is using leveraged positions in U.S. Treasuries as a, as a softening, as a value-at-risk softener or a beta balancer or a way of basically diversifying risk, they have been able to take advantage of the fact that treasuries are negatively correlated with equities over most of the last 30 years. That is untrue when inflation is rising. It's also untrue when your primary holder of treasuries becomes a seller. So you get a quick what's called flip correlation, and all correlations go to one. So those highly levered hedge funds tend to be getting margin calls at this point in time because there is no safe place to be. And so you tend to get most asset classes just selling off in tandem, even gold, which may be held as a safe haven in levered positions, they have to be sold too because they're getting margin calls on everything and you sell what you can. That's an extreme scenario. It has happened a few times over the last decade where there's been really quick pops higher in Treasury yields. But that's an oversimplification. It goes deeper than that. Mm. Think about the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury has a very difficult time, uh, not necessarily Treasury, but the U.S. government has a very difficult time in this political environment getting fiscal stimulus through if Treasury 10-year borrowing costs are rising because of the impact it has on CBO budget estimates and budget reconciliation. So Treasury yield curve steepening tends to crowd out the U.S. Treasury. It has the same impact on the big states, New York, California, Illinois. Steepening the curve can have a bigger impact on their budgets and their fiscal pictures than, say, your average household. There is an impact on households with balance sheet reduction, and that is the housing market, because housing 30-year mortgages tend to be tied Roughly speaking, to 10-year Treasury yields as their biggest, uh, uh, highest correlation. So when you see 10-year Treasury yields rising from one and a half percent, where we were, were just honestly two and a half months ago, to three and a quarter percent, you see mortgage rates follow piggyback, one for one, if not even higher. And now we're seeing a 30-year mortgage rate. Freddie Mac's rate came out yesterday, five and a quarter percent. You see housing does see drag from balance sheet reduction. But beyond that, your average small business does not see much impact. There are very few small businesses that are borrowing 30 years to finance anything. Where you see small business impact is when bank lines of credit costs rise. So think about a small regional grocer or small department store. They carry a lot of inventories. They finance that with bank loans. Those small regional grocers have already seen their operating margins decline a lot because wages are rising. Energy costs are rising, cost of goods sold is rising. Now they're seeing basically a 300 basis point rise in their – essentially their lines of credit. So it really squeezes their margins. Same thing for auto lending. Auto lending, we've already seen 40% jump in both used and new car prices. I'm throwing out a number there. Obviously, that's not exactly true. But you've seen huge jumps in car prices. Now you're going to see, for many of those borrowers, large jumps jumps in financing costs almost doubling their monthly payments. Same thing for other types of small personal lines of credit. You're going to see a big impact there. So using the Fed funds rate really does tend to squeeze Main Street America far more than it squeezes large cap stocks. In contrast, if you flatten the curve enough, companies like Apple actually see their borrowing costs in the 10-year part of the curve go lower by Fed over-tightening, mm-hmm. and you can actually – that's when you start to see that wacky financial engineering that stock buybacks can produce in terms of engineered earnings per share growth. With the Fed using the balance sheet, it is really taking that last kind of put in the equity markets away. Stock buybacks become less and less uh, um, earnings accrual-producing. Uh, if the curve steepens. And so you're going to get less and less of that type of support as well. So this really does put impact on wall street by steepening the curve and you're using the balance sheet to reduce liquidity.
1: Very interesting. We're talking with Tom Tesouris of Strategas uh, who does, is overseeing their fixed income research. Uh, Todd, there's a lot there I want to drill into the, on the last point on the, on, this, on the steepness and the flatness of the curve, how that ties into some of other Wall Street. Professor Siegel has been talking about on our show his view, uh, coming back to what you said about the long bond being this ultimate risk-off asset. And, and your point on is very well taken that everything's going down together and, and bonds are no longer serving that role today. Um, but do you, do you think the demand for them as this risk off asset has changed in any way over time? And, uh, you know, he's, he's been saying on our show, he thinks that the curve will be inverted more often because of that demand and that will, we ultimately through this cycle, like most Fed cycles, you end up getting an inverted curve maybe by the, for, for sure by the end of it. But do, do you, do you want to countertake that, that they'll have an inverted curve through this cycle or, 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 or more often?
0: Well, that really comes down to Fed policy. And without getting too technical, it actually turns out that if you don't have credit risk embedded in your sovereign curve, then it's almost mathematically impossible to invert a treasury curve between twos and tens unless the central bank makes a policy mistake. So in order to have more often curve inversions, what you really are saying is the Fed is going to artificially raise what we call term premia on the front end of the treasury curve up the levels that are short term, not sustainable. Now, that's possible that the Fed could embark on that, and this would certainly be the environment to do it. When you're looking at 8% inflation, you would argue this is, the, this is the time where the Fed should move to a frequently more restrictive policy to continue to rein in inflation. But I'm not sure they have the political will to do that because the point we just made earlier, when you use the Fed funds rate and you raise the term premium on the front of the curve, you're really squeezing disproportionately – the two-thirds to to 75% of America that is essentially small businesses and households. So politically, that has been a, for lack of a better term, that's been a primary contributor to wealth inequality over the last two decades, the Fed's overuse of the Fed funds rate and curve inversions. One of the points we make at Strategus is curve inversions are not just leading indicators of economic outcome. They are causative factors in particular. Mm. They're causing factors of wealth inequality on the other sides of recession. So I, I, I won't push back that that may be the path that we see because the Fed very well could go down that path and artificially push higher short-term rates relative to where they should be. But I would say that politically, at the very least, this Fed is aware of this phenomenon curve inversions have and, and, and indicate and more so than prior Feds is less willing to invert the curve. So that might put that would be my pushback on that argument. The Fed is more aware of these curve inversions and their impacts they have.
1: When, when you think about this cycle, um, if, if, this, if, if and you think about how the Fed funds futures are pricing this cycle, uh, where would you come out on where the market's priced versus your baseline view? Are you right in line, more hawkish, less hawkish? How, how would you say your your outline for rates are?
0: Yeah, generally less hawkish on the Fed funds rate for all the points we've made earlier that politically the Fed really cannot uh, um suffer another recession where they, for the first time in 40 years, labor has bargaining power, and they crush the labor market only to see the S&P 500 hit 5,000 on the other side of the recession. They can't they, – politically, that will be uh, – the Fed will be, get tarred and feathered if that happens. So we think the Fed is more inclined to under-tighten on the front end of the curve by maybe one or two hikes. Than to over tighten. But every day that inflation stays above 8%, you have to continue to raise your Fed funds, terminal Fed funds target. So right now, the market is pricing in, we'll say, a peak about 350 on the Fed funds rate. We would say that's probably roughly where the Fed is going to go, give or take one tightening. And if I had to say, where are the odds lying, the tail risk, I'd say less than 350. One, we'll say 325 is more likely than 375. But 350, Consistent with the market, that's where our expectation is. Just a slightly fatter tail to the left at 325 with slightly higher odds than 375.
1: And how long does it take us to get to 325? Well,
0: if you're Bullard, tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're Powell, you realize and you recognize that it's not just the level of the Fed funds rate that matters. The pace at which you get there matters. And again, simplifying, oversimplifying, think about that regional grocer. If his operating margins are 4% and you raise the Fed funds rate 300 basis points tomorrow, he has an immediate compression in his earnings margins to 1% or less. If he, you give him a year to two years to make up that, he can find ways through productivity enhancement to reduce the impact. So the speed at which you raise the Fed funds rate to its peak matters. I suspect that they're not going to get to that 350 until – June, May or June or so of next year. Um, I think there's a very high chance that they pause the pace of rate hikes early next year or late this year. That slows it down a little bit. Um, But I would not be the slightest bit surprised if this inflation stays sticky at 8%, then they're going to have to bring 75 basis point rate hikes back on the table. And that means we get there sooner, perhaps as soon as December of this year.
1: Very interesting. Um, so we're going to continue talking. We have Tom Desoris with us for the hour. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets. We're just talking about the Fed and their actions. Tom, I want to, uh, ask you a little bit more on, on your big statement, I think, that, uh, the inversions of the curve, everybody's been talking about these inverted curves all year. Uh, and, and your point that it causes sort of more causal of a recession. Um, if, if you could go into that point a little bit, like what do you think the mechanism on the causing of the recession is not just being correlated to the recession, but actually causing it?
0: Well, so there's the first point where essentially you squeeze the credit pool for the portion of the economy that can least withstand it, the two-thirds to three-quarters cash burners. Households tend to have high cash burn rates, small businesses have tend to have high cash burn rates. So they're far more sensitive to the rise of, in the cost of money. And simplistic way of thinking about it is you squeeze, if it's a small business, you squeeze and compress their earning margins to levels where they can no longer compete in the race for capital and the race for labor. So they lose market share on top of seeing their earnings margins compress. And so that's a problem. But you also see this phenomenon where the credit markets know that when the curve is inverting, you're slowing the pace of growth. And so they tend to ration credit away from cash burners. So not only do you tend to see their borrowing costs rise because benchmark treasury yields rise, but there's usually another 50 to 200 basis point credit spread premium that gets piled onto that because now the economy is quote unquote softening and they're weaker credits to begin with. So you really put pain onto the portion of the economy that tends to borrow a lot Because they need to, because they have high cash needs. In contrast, cash hoarders, think of the large cap companies like Apple, think of um, essentially um, high net worth individuals, places that really have no need for cash, but might have high exposure to the back end of the curve. When you see the curve invert or flatten or invert, you actually push their borrowing costs down. And if they're very high quality borrowers, like say the US government, the housing agencies, You tend to see their credit spreads actually decrease at a time when Main Street is seeing their borrowing costs rising quite rapidly. So it tends to funnel – the way I think about it is it tends to funnel capital away from the places that need it and towards the places that don't need it. So mm-hmm. you get AAA-rated companies like Johnson & Johnson, which actually see their borrowing costs decline, or Fannie and Freddie. I spent many years at the housing agencies, and I'll tell you this. Inverted yield curves are great for the GSEs because it increases their arbitrage, their borrowing advantage versus the corporate credit market. One of the perverse consequences of the Fed over, slowly over-tightening – In the last uh, two cycles ago during the early 2000s was it actually worsened the housing bubble because it pulled credit away from Main Street and sent it to the housing market via Fannie and Freddie because Fannie and Freddie's borrowing costs pushed down. So this force, this phenomenon where you actually shift credit away from places that need it and towards places that don't need it. Worsens wealth inequality on the other side of the recession, and it also accelerates the path towards recession for that two-thirds to three-quarters, the main street. So it becomes a causative factor in recessions, not just a leading indicator.
1: For what, given your time at Fannie and Freddie, and uh, and what's uh, been going on interestingly in the housing market, any commentary on how mortgage costs have spiked and what's going on now? Do you think that's going to cool off housing now? It's been so hot. Uh, what, what's your sense? Yeah,
0: so we've seen and now we're seeing the opposite of what might have been happening in the past because you're seeing tenure yields rising so much that it has put a material drag, in my opinion, on the housing market. So let's just look at the straight numbers. You've got 30 year mortgage rates averaging about five and a quarter percent as of yesterday from Freddie Mac's survey. That's an interesting level because in the last decade and a half, that would have put a complete stop to housing. But you got to remember, that's because nominal growth was 4% at the time. One rule of thumb we like to think about is when borrowing costs, 30-year mortgage rates get above nominal growth – then housing is becoming less and less affordable with each passing quarter to year, and there has to be some adjustment in home prices. So you don't tend to see home price depreciation or declines for the most part, or you shouldn't expect a material um, uh, slowdown in housing unless borrowing costs get above nominal growth. Well, nominal growth right now is 8 to 10%, so we've got a ways to go. But we've seen enough of a move so marginal buyers who really should not or could not have afforded housing have been completely pushed to the sidelines. That has got to bring home price appreciation to a grind and probably slows down home building as well over the next two to three quarters.
1: Given the bidding wars you would hear about people bidding sight unseen and no, you know, no inspections, all the things, the anecdotes you hear from your friends who are trying to buy a house, that might not be a bad thing at the moment.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think it rations, um, what is otherwise a healthy source of aggregate demand for the economy and pushes some of that excess bidding into the future when we might need it, say in 12 months or so when the economy is softer. So I think it's, it's a healthy way of kind of rationing aggregate demand in housing as long as 10 year yields don't jump another 100 basis points. Now, if that happens, now you're getting into the levels that could very well threaten nominal, uh, threaten, um, uh, house prices, housing prices.
1: Sticking on the mortgage topic, but that is also part of the Fed policy. In um, talking with one of the other bond managers, uh, I often talk to, um, he he had a concern about how the Fed was going to be able to get out of some of the mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet, and he questioned whether there would be buyers for them and and how they would do that. Um, do do you have any fears about now that we know a little bit more about the the Fed? Plans? Any fears about how they're going to exit some of their mortgage-backed securities?
0: No, as of right now, no real fears or concerns. And part of that's because they're going so slow. It's almost it, it's almost irrelevant. I shouldn't say it's irrelevant to the mortgage market, but let's be honest. They're going to be trimming mortgages right now at a pace of about fifteen billion per month. Uh, the mortgage market is, we'll say, uh, nine trillion. So it, it's literally it's a drop in the bucket. Um, even on a full year's basis, if they trim mortgages by 300 billion to 400 billion, we estimate that net float, including organic growth in mortgage supply over that time period, might be 400 billion. So you're talking about 800 billion increase in net float. Again, that might seem like a lot, but that still probably only translates into maybe a couple dozen basis points of mortgage spread widening. So I don't have concerns assuming that mortgage balance sheet reduction stays. Uh, mostly in the form of maturing bonds and no longer being reinvested. You, it gets a little bit different when you start to sell mortgages. So when you sell mortgages, obviously you now are going out forcing the market to produce a bid. That changes the dynamics a little bit. But that, I mean, if they come out and try to sell $100 billion a month, there's going to be no buyer. If they come out and try to sell $5 billion a, a month on top of the $15 billion that's running off, there shouldn't be much problem. The mortgage market also has a pretty well- developed mechanism to digest these called the TBA or forward market, which is perhaps a smoother market for the Fed to be doing asset sales through than the treasury market, which would otherwise require uh, essentially auctions or or Fed auctions. So I think it will go smooth. We're also expecting a small amount of mortgage sales. It's mostly runoff from maturities. So I don't think there's going to be much uh, stress in the mortgage market, but we are looking at spreads widening another 25 basis points, which is going to mean that all else equal, a 30-year mortgage over the next, we'll say, three to six months, is probably going to rise just another 25 basis points to five and a half percent.
1: Very interesting. We're talking with Tom Tazorus, who's uh, managing director and head of fixed income research at Strategas, a Bear company. Uh, and and Tom, when when you look at the other issues, um, you know, Professor Siegel talked about the real rates. Uh, I remember thinking, can you really get real rates this negative before getting to negative 1% on the 10-year tips? And, and you did for, for a while. Now we're back in positive territory. Um, we, we often show a chart of the 10-year tips yield back to 97 when they were first launched. They were 1.5% on average. Given where they are today, um, is it a fair level of, of the 10-year tips as a real rate? Where do you think that should be over time?
0: Uh, well, realistically, I mean, you should be looking at 10-year real yields somewhere around 1% um, over the steady state intermediate to long term. So I think we're we're still not to, quote, unquote, reasonable levels, but we're no longer at absurd levels where we're at least looking at positive real yields. Um, it, it's interesting because you could make an argument here that the more the Fed tightens and the more it reduces its balance sheet, the more likely real yields are to rise, and that's probably true. But I don't necessarily think that we're going to be able to very easily see real yields move much above 1% um, this cycle. Uh, Simply put, um, you're going to have a Fed that's going to stop balance sheet reduction and rate hikes perhaps well before it should, uh, well before it should in terms of inflation. So inflation is going to remain elevated for some time. So you might see yields rise, but real yields are still going to find that there's probably a
1: harder or, or, or shorter ceiling than we've seen in the past. How much does some of the global dynamics come into your your field when you look at uh, certainly the Fed is now you know gone into a very aggressive hiking mode. What do you see from global central banks like what is your sense of how much pressure downwards on our yields we get from around the world
0: you know it this is actually a great question because it's not as always intuitive as you might think. People often like to look at say ten year treasury yields versus Japanese government bonds or german bonds and say well treasuries are yielding 300 basis points more than bonds, but you got to factor in currency adjustment. So right now, when you do that, you find that treasuries are, yes, they are very cheap versus JGBs, Japanese government bonds, and cheap versus German bonds, because essentially the currency adjustment is something on the order of, we'll say 175, 200 basis points, and you still have a yield advantage versus foreign alternatives. What that means is you do tend to have – a shorter ceiling on treasuries when after currency adjustment, treasuries are still cheap because foreign buyers can come in and they can completely or almost completely neutralize their currency risk and buy treasuries whenever there's any sort of panic or flight to quality. That's the situation we're in right now. And so what it means is that we're probably still looking at a labored movement higher in 10-year treasuries. We'll see these little gaps higher, 15 to 30 basis points very quickly, but they'll be prone to reversals lower as foreign buyers will come in. And that's simply because right now treasuries are still cheap, even after FX currency adjustments. In the past, you've, when you've seen bigger nominal yield differentials between treasuries and, and Japanese government bonds, you haven't, if you didn't factor in currency adjustment, you might say, well, treasuries are 350 basis points above Japanese government bonds. But the reality is currency adjustments were huge, 325 or so, so that you actually had a very narrow spread. This was the situation in, late, in, say, late 2018, 2019, where everybody was saying, well, how can treasury yields rise when Japanese government bonds are so low? But the reality was FX costs were so high, Japanese investors could not buy treasuries. So it's a different situation right now. We think it's going to put a ceiling on tens. It's another reason why we see... Tenure yields peaking somewhere between 325 and 335 because value buyers are very likely to step in. Even though that's not a very high real yield, we think value buyers will start to step in at the, at those levels. And many of them already are stepping in at these levels.
1: It is very interesting. People get very confused about the cost to hedge currency. What does it mean? Um, you're, you're sort of in the U.S. as a U.S. Investor, when you go and you have to buy euros and you buy foreign stocks, you know, you now actually get paid that sort of different cost to hedge the euro, as an example, on top of, you know, when you're buying the stocks. So so in those international bonds, most of the international bond strategies are hedged because they get, they neutralize that, uh, that foreign currency risk and they get, basically on par to u.s yields Um, but it's interesting the yen has been one of the most interesting currencies as and it shocked people i think the last six weeks has been shocking you had a time when currency vol was the lowest it had been in like 30 years because nobody had any difference in policy rates and it just was like a boring boring market and then the yen has gone from like 105 to like 130 and really 115 to 130 in the last six weeks mostly with the rates um this is is your sense that it's still going to be rates-driven? Do you agree that it's been rates-driven, or what else is going on there?
0: Yeah, I definitely think it's been rates-driven. Essentially, you have a Fed, which is tightening, as we talked about, the most aggressive, substantial tightening, one-day tightening in 30 years. And on that same day, you have the Bank of Japan effectively easing because it's still engaging in what they call, or we call, yield curve control. So the way, mechanically, again, a little bit of an oversimplification – But when you are engaging in yield curve control, you're buying 10-year Japanese government bonds, and so you're flooding the market with yen at a time when all currency markets are seeing rising cost of, of, of accessing, cost of money. And so you're essentially easing... But at the same time, the rest of the market's tightening, which means the yen has to be the escape valve and the yen softens or weakens because the the, uh, Bank of Japan is pumping too many yen into the market on a time when the market's trying to tighten uh, borrowing costs. So I do think it's predominantly rates driven. I don't think we can infer any sort of macro warning signal from this at this point in time. but at some point in time, I think it also says to the Bank of Japan, you've got to abandon your yield curve control policy. You have to let your 10-year JGBs free float. And when that happens, JGBs will probably rise quite substantially in yield, and the yen will reverse higher at that point, in my opinion.
1: We're, we're talking with Tom Tuzoris, uh, managing director at Stracheas a Baird company. Uh, I, I saw one of your colleagues, Chris Verone, on Bloomberg talking about this yen issue, and he was saying that the markets are going to... Test. I, I, I don't know if I want to misquote. I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember him talking about 150 on the yen as a target if, if things don't change, that the pressure of rear rates were going. Uh, and I guess he does a lot of technical work at Strategas and, and sort of thought that that level could be in play based on all the dynamics. I thought that was a very interesting uh, point of view.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is, and I think Chris's view really reflects the fact that for now the Bank of Japan uh, seems to be giving no indication that it wants to abandon its easy money policy. So if that's the case, the sky's the limit, and and how high the dollar can go versus the yen. Eventually, though, I do believe the Bank of Japan is going to have to step up a hair and say we're going to at least uh, soften our our range here on ten-year yields or completely abandon the yield curve control policy, at which point in time, then that ceiling on on the dollar versus the yen uh, drops drastically and the yen should appreciate.
1: So we we talked a lot about yields, a lot about the Fed. As you think about first fixed income strategy research, um, maybe quickly, any views on what you're talking to clients about how to manage portfolio risk, given all these macro views we've talked about?
0: Yep. And so for the strategies that we uh, uh, manage and advise on at Strategis, we have been advising clients for quite some time to be underweight duration, short duration, whatever their benchmark is. Typical benchmark might be the Barclays, Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Index, uh, which is the bond market equivalent of the S&P 500. Most of our clients, if not all of our clients, have been drastically short duration versus their benchmark. And, And essentially, that's a way of saying that everybody expected rates to go higher. And we've been telling clients as tenure yields have been moving and moving much more rapidly than they have in the past, it's time to reduce those duration gaps versus your benchmark or get more benchmark neutral. Along the way, we've been advising clients to begin adding treasuries because with each passing quarter, particularly once the Fed begins to tighten, the odds of a recession grow and grow. And so with the recession, you get more rapid credit spread widening. And so it's a good opportunity right now when credit is still in an outperforming category to take profits there. And so we've been advising clients to incrementally leg back into a treasury neutral and a a duration neutral positioning. And that's likely to continue. I don't see a justification to go overweight duration yet, that is, increase our interest rate exposure until 10-year Treasury yields make at least another 20 basis point pop higher from here. And even then, we might still maintain a neutral. But big picture is risk assets are probably still looking at another one to two quarters of risk off or softness. That might mean for investment-grade credit markets you're looking at another two to three percent downside in total and uh, price return. And likewise for equities we could be very easily looking at another five percent downturn just as 10year yields make their way to that three and a quarter percent range. At which point in time um, the risk of recession now grows. so risk assets could then face another second leg lower if the Fed, it proves turns out has over tightened. That's a different risk. That would be a reason to go long duration and continue to move out of credit spreads. We're not there yet, but nonetheless, that seems to be the path that we're heading towards. So we're advising clients to continue to move back into safer assets, uh, particularly, oddly enough, longer duration treasuries, if they, are, if they were pre existing, underweight or short there.
1: Well, it's interesting at the pace we've been in the last two days. You could be at twenty basis points by uh, by Wednesday. <laughs> the the pace is moving quick, uh, but no, very interesting on where you think it's going and and how to position those profiles Tell tell our listeners a little bit more about Strategas, um, and, and we I keep talking about a Baird company. You guys had a recent acquisition. Talk through uh, what it's been like to become part of Baird. What it is that Strategas. We talked a little bit, a lot about your macro research, and obviously people could see deep expert. On all things Fed, interest rates policy, tell us a little bit more about the company and and what you guys do broadly.
0: Yeah, so Strategis, for those who aren't familiar, we're a uh, a macro research shop broker-dealer. We're a top-rated macro research shop, independent research shop on the street, macro research. I head up our fixed income work, but we have research verticals across everything, equities, manufacturing, economics, public policy, technical, uh, and we've been in business now, I believe, for about 14 years or so. So uh, we've, we've been established. About four and a half years ago, we were purchased by Baird. It's been a great uh, opportunity for both parties, Baird and Strategas. Strategas has a great culture. We're a small place, but we have a very strong culture, and one of the great things about Baird is that Baird has reinforced the culture we have at Strategus. It's been a really great symbiotic experience for both firms, I believe. But as for our research, I mean, we're anywhere that you could imagine, anything that goes bump in the night around the globe, you got a strategist research staff member who can get on that and take a look and give our view as to what's happening.
1: So certainly like institutional uh firms will, will use you all. Is is there and, and to get it as uh do, do sort of general retail people through Baird get access? If it become a client of Baird, they'd be able to find access to to your work or how how would people think about getting access to the type of stuff you all do?
0: Um I'm not sure there's an avenue at this point for retail uh access, um, and I don't think there's likely to be one in the future, but um our colleagues at Baird who might be on the private wealth management side uh, do typically have access to our research and and they can communicate our views to clients. Um, And that's probably the avenue at which clients, retail clients might see our work that uh, as well as seeing us on on TV and on, on podcasts and episodes like this. But um, right now, I don't believe there's any, uh, any plans to go the research, the the retail route for research, but through Baird um, clients can get our thoughts and our views.
1: Yeah, so Baird Private Banking, Baird Advisors, probably. Uh, you mentioned having strategies. Like, What are the other types of strategies that you all manage? Uh, it's, it's sort of beyond producing, which it sounds like you guys do some uh, portfolio management work.
0: Yep, so Strategus actually does have uh, some ETFs that are now out there in the markets through our subsidiary Strategus Asset Management. We're in the process of getting our fixed income asset management products up there as well. So like, like most uh, business expansions, they're a work in progress and usually beyond uh, the analyst pay grade in terms of timing of when those are available. But um, nonetheless, that's the path we're going on. Um, folks can see our Strategus Asset Management website up. Uh, you can see us uh, listed um, on the website and the ETFs we manage. Basically, what we do is we take our macro research and we try to translate that into macro portfolio allocation. So we have thematic strategies where you can imagine inflation, ways to avoid or outperform in a rising inflation environment is one of our strategies. We have public policy research and the effects lobbying has on individual stocks. Those are the types of strategies that clients now see on the strategic Asset Management website. So we call them thematic strategies as well as um, alpha-type strategies, but they're all macro in, in nature for the most part, where we look at macro risks, lobbying risks, geopolitical risks being one of them, obviously inflation being another. We look at those risks and try to find the assets that outperform historically in those environments. So that's what uh, clients or, or, or investors would find when they look at the strategic asset management thematic strategies that really tie into our macro research work.
1: Uh, i'll I'll take a a little credit. I remember sitting down with Jason um probably a decade ago, talking about how we you guys should do this type of stuff um and I tried to explore it at, at wisdom tree and i don't think we obviously we never came to something but i I think that is uh it's a great idea of of how do you package. You're producing a lot of interesting research. How do you make it, So my point on retail, making it access? Well, how do you make it access? Well, the ETF structure is one way. where you can get easy access to strategist views. Um, you're expressing you know, the ultimate portfolio. Uh, I think that is uh, a fantastic way to do it. We sort of talked about a lot of different things. Um, any, any final places you'd, you'd sort of point things we didn't cover? Uh, you want to make sure our people got a, got a sense of, of, of your views or, or strategic as work?
0: Well, I'll say um, I'll say this. We we have a great deal of geopolitical risks going on around the globe that are are not my area of expertise. And so everything we've talked about kind of assumes that the world stays normal and healthy and sane and and nothing drastic happens. Obviously, that may not be the outcome. And that does very much affect Fed policy as policy. A Fed chair, um, Paul, indicated the events in Ukraine are not things that they can easily uh, forecast, but they have to consider. Clearly, if something changes on that uh, Eastern European front, or even there are geopolitical shocks in the U.S., that will change the Fed's path, up or down. And it's not immediately clear what that is. Right now, the markets are taking that as a reason to be risk-off rather than risk-on. And it very well may turn out that the Fed turns dovish as a consequence of these. But right now, the market is just pricing in fair and fair and fair, which I think is the logical approach when you have this level, high level of domestic and international geopolitical uncertainty. But that will determine what the Fed does to some extent, particularly with the balance sheet. If things were to quote-unquote go exceptionally well geopolitically, economically, that very well means worse outcomes for the financial markets because it means the Fed might be much more aggressive
1: with its balance sheet. So things to keep an eye on as uh, the political landscape unfolds. That's going to have to be our closing thought. Uh, That's been great discussion. We've been talking with Tom Tesouris, Managing Director, uh, Head of Fixed Income Strategy at Strategas a Baird Company. Tom, thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great one, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.